Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with stage 4 endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Today, we are so excited to bring you another interview for Endometriosis Awareness Month. At the time of recording, it is March, Endometriosis Awareness Month. Woohoo! So exciting! And we have once more a special interview with Wendy Bingham, who is a very important member of the endometriosis community. So, if you don't know Wendy, she is lovely and she is the founder of the nonprofit that is called Extra Pelvic Not Rare. So this is a nonprofit that is dedicated to starting conversation about extrapelvic endometriosis while also providing correct, up-to-date information about the signs and symptoms, diagnostics, and appropriate treatment referrals for extrapelvic endometriosis. Wendy runs the Facebook group Extra Pelvic Not Rare, which I'm a part of, of course, as well as the Instagram page, which I follow. <laughs> and she posts links to outside articles as well as her own well-thought-out and well-researched blog posts. Which I've all read. <laughs> I just feel like I have to make commentary. Of course. I, I can never talk by myself, can I? <laughs> she writes on topics such as extrapelvic endo and various body systems, from thoracic to digestive to skin to endo and people assigned male at birth, as well as animals. Not to mention her latest addition to her website are the videos that she's been putting together on extrapelvic endo. Wow. The videos are wonderful. They're really great. Easily digestible, easy to follow along. And I also think probably like 60 to 70 hours of research and easily. editing and production went into those videos. So if you have extrapelvic endometriosis, we definitely recommend that you go watch the videos. Some of the lessons that she's covered so far are what is extrapelvic endo and is extrapelvic endo rare? I think you can guess the answer to the second one. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is not. <laughs> she also covers where in the body has endometriosis been found, endometriosis in the diaphragm, and there's a lot more to come, we're sure. Yeah, her next video, video five, is about thoracic endometriosis. So I'm going to link her website, which is extrapelvicnotrare.org, in the episode description, as well as the show notes today, so that you can find Wendy and all of the various platforms. So we really just want to thank Wendy for all of her hard work, because as Brittany and I know personally, diving into the research to learn about these topics is definitely not easy. And Wendy prides herself on having accurate, trustworthy information. And she's really become a go-to in the endometriosis community for extrapelvic endometriosis information. Wendy's mission. She has a mission and a quest. And her mission is to help patients like us and help providers alike understand the facts around extrapelvic endometriosis and understand that it's actually not rare. So she is helping patients through all of her incredible advocacy. She is helping patients receive a faster diagnosis 
and empower themselves, empower ourselves really, to understand our treatment options when it comes to extrapelvic endometriosis. So today's interview with Wendy is going to be part one, and we're going to air part two next week, which is the last day of March. Oh, the irony. I love how that, Aww, yeah, I love how nice the, bow on top. the calendar, the fates align so that we could <laughs> air these three episodes during March. We have so much in store today to talk about. It was really, really fascinating. I think I learned so much, so I hope that everyone listening is going to enjoy and learn and be fascinated just like I was by all of Wendy's knowledge. And I do want to say that after Wendy and I recorded part one and part two the week after, but we literally both passed out. We were so exhausted from everything we talked about, from all the science, from all the chit chat before and after the episode. We both just passed out. I could not move for like seven hours after recording the episode. And I didn't even do anything except ask the questions. <laughs> okay, but I had to listen carefully to ask questions. But woo, it was a lot. So please enjoy. Wendy is a wealth of knowledge, and we are so thrilled to welcome her. Hi, Wendy. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here and for giving your time to all of us and all of the listeners. We really appreciate you being here. Thank you, Amy. I was really, really excited to do this podcast. I love what you and Brittany do. It's really enjoyable to listen to. And I'm really excited to provide a different perspective about endometriosis. And I thank anybody who's here listening with us. Well, we are very excited to hear your perspective on endometriosis and hear all about your knowledge of extra pelvic endometriosis as well. So I thought to start the interview, you could just tell us for a few minutes a little bit about yourself. Who are you? What's your endometriosis story? I know you have medical background, so you could go into that a little bit. Sure. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest in Washington and Oregon State, and I started beginning with symptoms my senior year of high school when I was 17. Primarily, it was gastrointestinal disorders, like, you know, a lot of diarrhea, no constipation, mostly diarrhea, and some urinary things. I'd have frequent urination, and with my periods, I also had some unusual nerve pain that I would get in my diaphragm, and I didn't know really what it was caused from came on a lot when I was running and I wasn't able to really focus that on exactly when that occurred every month. So being a runner, I just dismissed it as, oh, it's runner's trots. And, you know, it has things to do with me starting to breathe deeper when I was running. It ebbed and flowed throughout my young adult years. I went to Oregon State University and I got a, a general science degree. I wanted to originally be a veterinarian. So if we get to talk about animal endo later, it'll be really exciting. I eventually switched over to do physical therapy. So I graduated from Oregon State after spending a year away in England at the University of Lancaster. There I met my husband. And when we returned a few years later, I went to University of Maryland Eastern Shore and I got my master's degree in physical therapy. It ended up sending us all over the country, basically. My husband works for a, a nationwide company. So I moved along with him wherever we went and continued work as a physical therapist. I primarily focus on neurological disorders. I've got a passion for balance and inner ear problems, uh, but I've seen the, the gamut of complications from every kind of disease that you can imagine under the sun, from orthopedic to just generalized deconditioning. I do not have any pelvic floor experience. 
But my focus on neurology, I think, has really sparked and undermined the progress I've made towards getting extra pelvic out there. It plays a role in really understanding the body system. I went on to get my uh, transitional doctor to physical therapy. My first lung collapse occurred when I was working inpatient rehab. I had a respiratory therapist I work with who saw me afterwards a couple of weeks later. And he said, you know, really be careful that it doesn't associate with your periods. And I thought, wow, that's unusual for him to say. So this was before the internet really got going. And I did a little bit of research through the AOL. You had the little disc and you paid up for your monthly fee. There wasn't any information about it. All it just said was, you know, estrogen. It didn't really make a big link. And a lot of the databases weren't accessible at the time. So I thought, you know, oh, it's just crazy. This isn't real. So I went about and every month would come around and some months I would have these pains and I'd have, you know, difficulty breathing. And I just chalked it up as, no, that's not real. That's not real. So part of you was, you know, dismissing what was happening to me. I was gaslighting myself, right? Just saying, no, this, this can't be possible. And part of it is because I had seen his, he'd had a thoracotomy before, and I had seen his surgical incision and it was quite large. I think that really scared me. Uh, it added to my dismissal of this, this isn't real. And, you know, what could they do about it anyway? And when I was a little bit older, when I was 32, I had my one and only son. And a few months after I had him, I had a really large lung collapse. And it was most fascinating because it was right before my period. And after that time, when I was in the hospital, the doctor said, you know, we really should take a look in there. And I was really hesitant because we didn't have a job. So I was off work and my husband was just made redundant. He was middle management. And I thought this is, we just bought a house, a new child. I don't want to do that. And okay, this will happen. It won't happen again. So I didn't have anybody do an investigation. And when I look back, I wonder, well, even if he did, would he have known what to look for and solve the problem? knowing now, looking back. But at the time, you know, it continued forward. And then for the next few years, I, I really struggled um, with the months. Some months I would feel my lung clicking, slapping around inside there. I couldn't go into air conditioned places. It would just set off like these pleurisy pains. I was being stabbed all over in the chest and couldn't breathe in. It was like a freeze dried iron rod going through my chest. It was just that sensation. And then it calmed down for a few years. So I'd go a couple months and then I'd have an episode here and there. Fast forward to the future that in my mid 40s, I started getting really deconditioned. I couldn't tolerate doing things. And then I was starting to get really nervous about what I could do with my career. And I started looking online more and I came across Nancy's Nook. And this was back a few years when there was only a couple thousand people there. There was a little bit of talk and people were still, oh, it's still really rare. And you know, we didn't have a lot of information. So then I found another group who Donna Wall had created a thoracic endo group for people that were looking for answers. So I got in there. And while I was there, I started building an education platform for everybody. I was gathering all the research I could find. Because as a physical therapist, I knew, you know, very little about the disease. We learned, you know, a couple paragraphs of the disease. And then I look back and say, wow, I, I saw these people when I was in the clinic that had radiculopathies, they had nerve pain that I now question. Some of my sent back, there were red flags to me saying, okay, it was worse at your period. Maybe that's not what's going on. But I sent those people back, never found out what happened to them. 
I eventually figured out what was happening and I had a local OBGYN do a surgery and I was like, look, don't touch. And I was basically pleading with him at the time. He had put me on birth control for eight months. It was the worst eight months of my life. I had high blood pressure. I felt like I was oozing inside. And every time I would walk, I would feel my liver and my ribs glued together by adhesions. And I would literally grunt with every step. I eventually had surgery with him. He delayed, delayed, delayed. Nobody had ever taken a peek before. Delayed, delayed, delayed. And then when I woke up, his eyes were like saucers and he had his arms crossed. You know, the body language was really eminent. And he was, I think, really blown away by how severe it was. And I hope that he realized that you put off how bad I felt and how desperate I was for care. I finally get surgery after I've been having ups and downs for 30 years. And then I went from there, I went to Atlanta and I had surgery at the CC. So there I had a laparoscopy and a and evats together. And there were lots of adhesions, a lot of fibrotic disease in my abdomen, they removed, they removed three areas from the right side of my diaphragm and one area on my left. And then in the chest, he removed three areas, three wedge resections of my lung, then he removed the pleural lining. And that's important, because if you have a history of lung collapses, by doing a pleurectomy, and then kind of abrading the tissue there on the lung surface, it creates a glued effect so that it reduces the risk of future lung collapses. So I I was there, I had some complications afterwards that, you know, the lung was bubbling away and it wouldn't fully heal. So I had a a chemical pleurodesis, which is kind of like the final way to adhere the lung to the, the chest wall to stop any air leaks. So that was done in 2016. So what that did full circle, bringing me to where I am right now, is I realized how important it is for us to be more aware of disease that may not be as common as reproductive disease. And that more and more people were reaching out to me in the community and searching for answers. They were like the Island of Misfit Toys. They had all these strange things going on. And we know that there's a lot of comorbidities that come with endometriosis. And it's really important for us to not blame endo for everything because we do. I mean, a lot of times we blame some of the craziest stuff. It's got to be endo. It's got to be endo. And that's what makes extra pelvic actually really difficult at times because everybody wants to blame it on it. Yet you have to realize, okay, there's all these other disorders that your care team have to work through more common disorders that have to be looked at first based on your age and your medical history before we can start looking at extra pelvic disease. The only other problem is, is that when a doctor creates their differential diagnosis list, endometriosis usually isn't on that for some of these odd places. So if you have radicular leg pain, nerve pain, or you're having issues with your bowel or respiratory issues, or you've got this lesion under your skin, your abdominal wall, that's acting abnormal. It's really painful and it's expanding with your periods. It's something that's not on their radar to look for. So the more I started hearing about these stories and Then I turned to the databases and saw that there was very little research there in the databases. Nothing, particularly because there's so little research on extra pelvic disease. One is it's not well-funded. Most of these cases are seen in large universities where that is where research is done, but there's no funding per se for it, not specifically through the NIH. I mean, extra pelvic disease is behind even generalized endometriosis for funding. So who's going to look at that, right? I created that niche, I saw the need, and then I wanted to 
find my way to amplify the voices of those that are rare and atypical. So the literature that says rare doesn't match up with the experiences I'm hearing, the number of experiences from around the world. Is it that it's rare and they just finding me and they're finding our group and they're seeing it on social media that they're reaching out, they're desperate and I do have it. Are they really rare or is it that there's these pockets of people that have disease, they didn't really make the connection or they've had nobody to talk to who would hear them and consider that connection. And so I see this difference between medicine, what the doctors are perceiving about the disease and what we're experiencing with the disease. It's always been there with endometriosis, but in particular with extra pelvic disease, this disease is a lot bigger and a lot more vast than we realize. And I think we're at this period in time, we need to make that shift. And in the last few years, I think you're really starting to see the shift. And as we talk about, you know, what is endometriosis? What's its definition? I think we're going to see a shift towards looking at it as a body-wide disease. You know, Wendy, I think you're absolutely right that there for so long has been this hole in our knowledge, not only about endometriosis, but especially about extra pelvic endometriosis. And, you know, I think we are seeing this shift from the community to go from endometriosis is what's considered a period disease or a disease of bad menstrual cramps to being a full body disease that can affect different parts of the body and have symptoms pretty much everywhere. I wonder if you can talk further about the definition of endometriosis. Are there more proposed definitions of endometriosis or like, are you happy with the current definition that we have or what proposals do you have about what the definition should be? Well, if I had a room full of hiatus here right now, I'm sure we'd all be laughing because it's pretty bad, isn't it? The current definition is very confining. It represents only a very small portion of people with the disease and a very small portion of the actual disease process itself. So if I was to look now, the World Endometriosis Society website has a little bit more expanded current definition apart from endometrial-like tissue. They describe it as a condition in which tissue similar to the lining of the uterus is found outside the uterus, where it induces a chronic inflammatory reaction that may result in scar tissue. So they, they have expanded a little bit more on it to make a note that it does involve inflammation and it can result in scar tissue. But in the past few years, there's been more and more progress, as you mentioned, to change the definition. In 2018, Dr. Vagano and her associates in Italy had published an article and it was entitled Time to Redefine Endometriosis, Including Its Pro-Fibrotic Nature. So that's a step forward. So in Dr. Vagano and her associates' publication, quote, they clarify, endometrial stroma and glands have been shown to represent only a minor component of endometriotic lesions, and they are often absent in some forms of disease. So what they're referencing there is that a lot of times glands are absent in endometriosis lesions, not just abdominal pelvic, but also extra pelvic, particularly thoracic disease. There's a very high rate of disease that's found without glands being present, and that affects a positive diagnosis. So Dr. Vagano had noted that primary cells fundamentally to the definition of endometriosis is lacking. They did highlight what's always present. And I quote her, a smooth muscle component 
and fibrosis represents consistent features of all disease. So she highlighted that even if glands are missing, when you do the testing, smooth muscle is present. So given the findings, they had created this new rudimentary definition. And she quotes, a fibrotic condition in which endometrial stroma and epithelium are identified. So she gave the headway for other researchers to expand on on this, taking the fact that it's a pro-fibrotic disease. In other words, the purpose of the disease, the disease has a purpose, it has a lifespan, and that lifespan is moving us towards fibrosis. So it's not a stagnant disease. And there is debate on that because you do find that some disease is not progressive and there's other disease that is progressive. But we're not at a point right now where we can actually differentiate among people with the disease whether they have progressive disease or non-progressive disease. So very closely following Dr. Vagano, Dr. Sun Wei Gao had made suggestions that rounded the definition to include the full cycle of lesions. And so I'm going to quote his definition, which is a bit more expanded. A condition that started with the ectopic deposition of endometrial stroma and epithelium, which undergo cyclic bleeding and thus repeated tissue injury and repair, resulting in gradual and progressive smooth muscle metaplasia and fibrogenesis. So he brings in the full cycle of what a lesion does. It does allow better visualization. You can actually picture this being a pathological process and not just some tissue that's in the wrong place. And I think that's really important that he makes that clarification that it is a disease that is intent on going through a process to become a fibrotic entity. So I think Sunway Gao's proposed definition is closer to represent the disease, but there's a few things I personally would change. I mean, for all it's worth, you know, it's only my opinion, right? I mean, who am I, right? So he uses the words ectopic deposition. And that implies that the lesions originate from a site other than where it's present. And this is based on theories the theories that we have of where the diseases come from. And my definition, if I could change it, would be endometriosis is an enigmatic disease in which endometrial-like stroma and epithelium is present among body tissues and undergoes cyclic bleeding, thus repeated tissue injury and repair, results in gradual and progressive smooth muscle metaplasia and fibrogenesis. So all I did was just take the words ectopic deposition out of the equation. And I wanted to use enigmatic because we don't know how the disease gets there or evolves from tissue that's in place. And I think that's really important because science is intended not to have a bias and that we do not know what causes endo. And therefore, we should not be implying that it's deposited there unless we have absolute proof that it's deposited there. And we cannot imply that it's ectopic because is it really from the uterus? It may not be uterine tissue that says ectopic versus uh, utopic versus ectopic, right? We don't know that it's uterine tissue or uterine-like tissue. So I, I think that that's a really important thing that if we just took ectopic deposition out of the definition and inserted enigmatic, then I think that makes us all happy. I really, I love your proposed definition of endometriosis. I also think it's really important to just get away from anything having to do with the uterus, whether yes. that be, you know, endometrial-like tissue, like. 
tissue yeah. similar to the uterine lining, ectopic, right. meaning, you know, it originated somewhere. Normally, when we see studies now, you'll see them refer to ectopic tissue, which they're talking about endometriosis, and they'll say utopic tissue. Yes. When they say utopic tissue, they're referring to the endometrium inside yes. of the uterus. And when they're saying ectopic, they're referring to endometriosis because ectopic means in the wrong spot. So right. just getting away from this language yep. of ectopic, utopic, the endometriosis is its own thing. Let's just forego the uterus. Yes. And I think that's uh, what I laugh when I say, oh, okay, we're going to talk about extra pelvic. And I really feel like the more I looked at this, I thought this interview is really more about the bigger question of getting away from the uterus. So a lot of these questions are much more of a science is making a mistake. Science is already biasing. Researchers are already biased. And this is important because later on, we'll talk about, you know, what drives change it. For extra pelvic, I'll talk a lot about medicine being evidence-based and evidence is based on data. We don't have the data behind us for changes in medicine for extra pelvic disease. And it'll also, there's other things that'll tie into what we're talking about, getting away from the uterus, that researchers can do their own thing and have their own theories, but don't bring it into your literature unless your literature is specifically to prove a point. I want to support this theory or that theory, which is fine. But when we're talking about the definition and wait till we get to Amy, wait till we get to talk about what well, I'm going to talk about the ICDs. Wait till we talk about how they describe the disease in that. And that is where we can also, you can really reiterate that this isn't helping us get away from the uterus. The ICD codes, the definitions, these are all, we have to start at the top, the big things to make a change. And if this is what they're seeing, this is how we're, we've been stuck like this forever, right? So Wendy, I wanted to get some clarification in your definition because you mentioned the cyclical bleeding of endometriosis. So can you clarify further what exactly is the cyclical bleeding? Like okay. is endometriosis bleeding like a period? Is this like a menstrual bleeding if it's cyclical? What exactly is happening with this bleeding and the lesions? That's one of the, the million dollar questions I think out there in endometriosis. All the research that we've done and looking at the different schools of thoughts when I study endometriosis and I look particularly at extrapelvic disease, I see it as being more of an engorgement of the tissue that supports the endometriosis lesions becomes filled with pressure. There's a lot of blood pooling in the area of the disease. So the tissue around it becomes very unstable. So you can see a lot of what we call vascular instability of the tissue around it. And this kind of coincides with what we see with nosebleeds, catamenial nosebleeds. There's instability. As the hormone levels fall, estrogen falls, the capillaries in our body become more fragile. So catamenial nosebleeds is a common example of it. So that's how I look at the disease as knowing that the tissue structure around it becomes unsteady. It's being stretched and it becomes a little bit more fragile. And as our hormones fall, that tissue can break down. And that's where you get some of the bleeding in the areas. And then that bleeding leads to adhesive disease. So it's not the lesions in themselves that are bleeding per se. It's that the lesions are affecting the surrounding area with the inflammation and the engorgement of the tissue that's then hurting the nearby capillaries that's then causing that bleeding. Yeah. I mean, from a non-surgeon's view and, and how I, I look at the disease, that's how I perceive it to occur. 
So now that we talked a little bit about the definition overall in general of endometriosis, I'd love if you could let us know the definition of extra pelvic endometriosis. And if we find that definition satisfactory, or we also think that definition can use an update. Well, first off, I think the definition of extra pelvic endometriosis is varied depending on who you ask. The nomenclature that's used to describe disease outside the non-reproductive system is still confusing. And a lot of words are being used that are interchangeable. And some of them aren't interchangeable. They're mutually exclusive. But depending on who the researcher is, it's important to understand of what definitions they're using and what areas of disease fall into the definition that they're using. So to expand on that a little bit, I'm going to talk a little bit about a variety of the words that you hear out there. So you frequently hear what's called genital and extragenital endometriosis used together, or you'll hear gonad and extragonadal disease. Another group that you'll hear together would be genital, extragenital pelvic, and extrapelvic endometriosis. And then the last group that you may hear is pelvic and extrapelvic endometriosis. So when you read the scientific literature, you really need to understand the definition that the author is using to cluster the areas of disease they're talking about. So an example would be thoracic endometriosis is the most common location of extrapelvic endometriosis. Or you may hear thoracic endometriosis is the third most common location of extrapelvic endometriosis. So one statement says it's the most common and another statement says it's the third most common location. So a reader might say, okay, well, that's wrong. Or they might say, that one's wrong, that one's right. So both statements can be true. It depends on how the author defined extrapelvic disease. So in the first statement, thoracic endo is the most common location of extrapelvic endo. In this example, the author is referring to non-reproductive disease in relation to the bony pelvis. So any disease that affects, say, the urinary system or the lower gastrointestinal system would be considered extragenital pelvic endometriosis. However, disease that's found outside the bony pelvis, so it's abdominal wall or on the diaphragm or in the chest cavity, that is what they consider extrapelvic disease. So in the statement, and it says thoracic endo is the most common location of extrapelvic endometriosis, when they're using definitions extragenital pelvic disease and extrapelvic disease together, that's how they've separated the two. In the second example, thoracic endometriosis is the third most common location of extrapelvic endometriosis. They're referring to pelvic disease that's in relation to the female reproductive system. So all areas outside of the female reproductive system is considered extrapelvic disease. So in this example, when they say that thoracic disease is the third most common location of extrapelvic disease, they're referring to the fact that the digestive system, particularly the intestinal tract, is the most common location of extrapelvic disease. And the urinary system, so the bladder, the ureters, the urethra, the kidney, they're the second most common location of extrapelvic disease. So using a different set of nomenclature, both statements are correct. Now, if you were to ask me my personal opinion, I use on my website and in all conversations about extrapelvic disease, I refer to disease as pelvic, referring to the female reproductive system and the locations in the vicinity of the reproductive organs 
and extrapelvic disease as being anything outside of the female reproductive organs and the vicinity tissues. Why do I like that definition? Well, we've done a few surveys. We put out surveys in our community. Which do you like? Would you be comfortable saying, I have extra genital disease in a conversation with somebody? That just doesn't fly very well in regular conversations. It doesn't promote you to say, I have extra pelvic endometriosis. And then someone would say, what do you mean? He says, well, I have endometriosis that's affecting my ureters. Or I have endometriosis on my intestinal tract. Or I have endometriosis on my diaphragm. Extra genital brings us back to the uterus again, back to the reproductive system. And I don't want to get away from endometriosis and its impact on the female reproductive system. That's not my purpose at all, because I think that where we're going in health and having a voice and being able to speak about our conditions as humans is really important and it's valid and they need a voice. But I also feel particularly about this disease being so connected all this time to menstruation, I think that's going down the wrong track because we obviously see that clearly the disease goes far beyond the female reproductive system. It has body-wide and systemic issues that need to be addressed. So I prefer extra pelvic and pelvic as where we need to go with the definitions of extra pelvic disease. I agree 100%. I like <laughs> pelvic and extra pelvic. And I think I will not be comfortable saying I have extra genital endometriosis. And then they would go, what's that? And then on top of that, I would go, well, it means I have endometriosis in my rectum. So <laughs> it's just already this perfect storm of, we just want to get away from it being the uterus. And just yes. additionally, the word genital just has a lot yes. of connotations in our society. And I think we want to be able to openly speak about endometriosis and the ravaging effects that it has on our body and the different disease systems that it can affect, just to be able to speak openly like in any setting, whether that's with my grandma or with my boss or with my partner. I think just saying, you know, I have endometriosis that's extra pelvic totally sounds different to the general yes. public than I have endometriosis that's extra genital. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I, I truly believe that if we are to get anywhere with this disease, we talk about reaching out to our general practitioners and other specialties. I think that we need to move away from that conversation of when you just think of reproductive disease as being the primary for endometriosis, your doctor readily dismisses you to go to see a GYN about the disease. They're also I think going to be more receptive to looking at the disease more like we look at other conditions like diabetes. I mean, we obviously know the cause of diabetes, you know, that what it's directly related to in insulin production. But those who work with patients with diabetes already have a set plan in place. They already have a care team. They already realize that, wow, we need to make sure that we have an ophthalmologist on hand if we need to. We know that your cardiovascular system is going to be affected. We know that you could have neuropathic ulcers, lesions. So the integrity of your skin, you know, the risk for amputations is high. We also know that your urinary system, your renal functions can be affected. So they've already got this perception from school that, you know, we've got to be looking at the whole person when we see this disease. And I think we, we shift the definition is one start. But we also now have to shift the nomenclature that we're using to describe the disease. 
And when it comes to disease outside of the female reproductive systems, it's all over the place. And I think, can we simplify it, please? I think that it's really important that we do that for sakes of when I look at one study and I look at another study and they're using totally different categories, it makes it really confusing in a way that it shouldn't be. And we should really simplify those things, make every comprehensive, but then simplify things like categories. I hope that this is where we're heading. So Wendy, I wanted to ask you something really exciting because recently the first documented case of splenic parenchymal endometriosis was found. So endometriosis in the spleen. And since you are on this mission to make it known that extra pelvic endometriosis is not rare, I'm just wondering, how do you feel now that endometriosis has been found in every major organ, including the spleen? And then I also was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about these rarer cases of endometriosis, like endometriosis in the spleen or in different parts that are not your more typical extra pelvic, because we know that the most common extra pelvic sites are gastrointestinal, urinary, respiratory, and cutaneous. And we'll give statistics for those in a bit. But how do you feel knowing that endometriosis has now been found in this rare location of the spleen? And can you let us know a little bit more about endo and these other rare places? The interesting part about it was as the splenic lesion was found on accident, right? It was asymptomatic. And it was based on a case of a woman that had a return of metastatic breast cancer. So it does lend the question of how much this disease is out there that we don't know exists in in a variety of locations. And it's not like you're running to the hospital to have an MRI every day to verify that it's present. When I think about the spleen, I've always wondered because the spleen is involved in the lymphatic system, and we've clearly seen lymphatic disease in a variety of the, primarily within the chain, within the thorax and in the abdominal pelvic cavity. But we all look at the, the lymphatic system as being a possibility of how some of the disease is distributed. We could go further into the detail of from where is it distributed? I mean, it could be from the bone marrow directly. And it, yes, it could be from that organ down in our pelvis called the uterus. But I kind of look at the spleen as it's a sad day in a way to realize that endometriosis is located there, but it's also like a monkey off our back. You know, sad to say that, but when you go, yes, see, it's been found in every major visceral organ in our body, all 11 body systems. So that does lend something to the disease as truly body-wide. It reinforces that. In regards to locations, uh, we do know the statistics are all over the place for every area that we look at endometriosis. We don't have a set system in place that's, that's really comprehensive. And we base what we know about disease in some of these very, yes, I hate to word the rare, I'll use the word exceptional, locations. and. We don't know their extent either, but it's pretty exciting for a doctor to come across disease in such unusual places. So they usually make an attempt to to publish it. So some of the very rare places that we see are the tear ducts. There's been a handful of cases, the nasal cavity. There's been a couple of cases where the thumb, the wrist, the fingertip, the skin on the chest. These are only a couple cases ever that we've seen. If we were to expand it, say, to the next step of some of these places that are still exceptional, but we'd have more reports of them, that would be like within the liver body itself, the parenchyma, not the surface of the liver, but within the parenchyma. 
there's probably a close to three dozen or so, maybe just over. Same with the pancreas. We're seeing it both on the surface of the pancreas and within the pancreas. Kidney is another one that has more than a handful, but less than a couple dozen. It does make it curious for us to question, again, the origins of the disease. Some of these lesions are found within the body of the organ, but it hasn't penetrated through the outside of the organ. We've seen disease that's on the outside of the organ that hasn't penetrated in. And then you have that class of lesions that is found partway inside and partway outside the body of the organ. So where did it start, right? Chicken or egg in those situations. So that opens more questions again about the origin of the disease. If you go back to the germ layers that that Dr. Redwine talks about, most of these organs and the tissues that you're finding disease in, in a lot of these locations are from uh, what's called the mesoderm. There's three primary germ layers when we're a couple little cells after fertilization. And during those first couple months, we develop into an embryo. During about the fifth and sixth weeks of these cells multiplying, they start creating these three layers. And each layer has a purpose and it designs certain parts of our body. So the ectoderm is involved with developing of our nervous system and the skin. The mesoderm is involved with a lot of the lining of the inside of our abdominal and our thoracic cavities, which is the peritoneum. It's also involved in designing some of the organs in our system, as well as muscles in our body. And so a lot of the locations that they see disease are correspond to the mesoderm. Now, during that embryology, we have that mesoderm layer and you got these cells and we know that those all develop into core areas of our body. But what happens is there's a realignment. All these cells are jockeying for positions and they start to move into locations and groupings to what is going to institute certain organs of our body. What I find a lot is that the respiratory system during early evolution sits very close to cells that are involved with the reproductive system. So this is this movement of cells and they wonder if some of these cells do not migrate to their end destination. So as we grow from these ball of cells into those germ layers, and then we create organs, which called organogenesis, as we develop, some of these cells may not quite get to their destined target. And so a lot of what you hear from Dr. Redwine is this discussion about those cells never getting to their destination, but they're primed and ready and waiting for activation by hormones. They're waiting to be turned on. And now you see right around monarchy, some of these things, depending on how many receptors are available, that they're just sitting on idle, waiting to do what they think is their job, but they're not in the right location. So that's just like one example of when I look at some of these areas and you go, well, it could definitely be cells that are misplaced and they're sitting waiting at birth. But then you also look at a couple of locations and say, you know what? I can't dismiss the fact that things travel through blood or through the lymph system to get to these locations but we don't have attachment sites. That's the big thing is making that connection of, can we really find an attachment that you could peel the disease off, right? The lesion off of the host. I don't even want to call it a host because the tissue may not even be from another place. It may have already been there. So you can't really call it a host site, right? It could be, you know, transformation of cells themselves. So those are areas that I think we're in a community having to struggle with knowing within our own self, oh my gosh, is this related to endometriosis? or not. 
And that's something that is a learning curve, I think, within the medical community and our community of saying, okay, well, there's certain signs and symptoms that you really need to look towards if you really want to consider an endometriosis. So for extra pelvic endometriosis, we refer in most cases as having a catamenial component. So when we think of catamenial, catamenial is referring to around the menstrual cycle. Most extra pelvic disease is catamenial in its presentation. So it'll start out around your period, and then it will maybe increase in severity around ovulation. And then eventually, as the tissue becomes more fibrotic, then you have symptoms all the time. But not all areas of extra pelvic follow that rule of endometriosis. And that is really important for us and healthcare providers to understand. So areas such as the liver, only one out of all the cases, about three dozen cases that I looked at, and it's on my page had a cyclic component to her symptoms. And in that case, the lesion was actually inside and outside the liver body. So it was connected to the diaphragm, she had adhesive disease to the diaphragm. So it manifests in a cyclical fashion. So disease on the exterior of the liver a lot of time is adhered to the diaphragm and corresponds to that cyclic fashion. But disease that's inside the liver body is usually throughout the entire menstrual cycle. So people can have nausea, vomiting, the right upper quadrant pain that's not corresponding with your period. It's there all the time. And that's something that can get missed. And it's harder too, because imaging can't really differentiate between an endometriosis lesion versus say a benign cyst from taking oral contraceptives or another maybe more malicious disease. So there's a couple areas like the kidney and and the ureter. That's disease that can be asymptomatic. The kidney doesn't have pain fibers. So some people may feel pressure in the lumbar area, their back to one side, or they may have no symptoms, like no frequent urination, because ureter disease, about 50 to 70% of the people that have urinary disease affecting the ureter don't have symptoms. And people say, why is that? Well, they don't have pain fibers. And also the other kidney picks up for the lack of function of the kidney that's affected. So technically we can live with one lung, we can live with one kidney, but that's not really the point, is it? Because we have situations where somebody has disease and they're already compromised. And so, you know, their function isn't as good already. And so the other kidney will pick up for it. Meanwhile, that kidney may be suffering. It may continue to die because the ureter is kinked. And so there's backflow and then the kidney undergoes death. So it's important for us, what I've done on my website was create a one-stop shopping about some of these locations and pool the research that is available and compared and contrasted and, and looked for patterns that the research is presenting to us to provide that for both patients, the general population and medical providers, because they don't have time to research all these things. When they do publish an extra pelvic piece, they don't have time to research all those materials. So they'll pull out a couple, but they don't get to see the whole big picture. And so that part of what I've done is given an opportunity for that to be in one location to improve awareness about the disease. You know, Wendy, I just want to say that your website is so comprehensive when it has to do with extra pelvic endometriosis, and you have done a really good job pulling everything together and organizing it by body system. And then you also have blog posts that are really long and in-depth explanations of the different topics that you're interested in, which I love because I love reading about all the research, but 
I just want to say on behalf of everyone in this community, thank you so much for all of the work that you're doing. It means so much to this community because you're right, it does take a lot of time and it is really hard for doctors and patients alike to put all that research together. And I'm sure it's really hard for you to put all of that together, managing your family and your full-time job and having endometriosis yourself. I firsthand know how much work it can be to do research and to put out scientific information out there. It's really time-consuming and it takes a lot of work and drive and passion to be doing this for our community. So just on behalf of everyone, I just want to say thank you, Wendy. And the thing is with extra pelvic disease, what I try to do is I'm trying to amplify the voice of those with the disease. So when you read literature and when we're in medical school or whatever healthcare professional school you are, you learn the medical terms, shortness, breath, dyspnea. You learn, um, wait, what's painful painful sex? sex? Yeah. Dyspareunia. But what you don't hear is the adjectives, the actual patient experience. And I really think that we've moved away from the subjective experience, the patient experience when it comes to medicine. We're so focused on evidence-based medicine that's driven by data that what the person's experience is, that part of the examination, the value of it, the weight of it is less than what it used to be. And maybe for me as being a physical therapist, So much of our evaluation is literally the patient's going to tell you what's wrong with them. You have to have the ears to listen. And in the endometriosis community, I think this is so important. And I figured that a way to amplify that is taking quotes from people that have experienced disease in these certain areas and being able to say, may I use what you've just described and put it on my website? Because I want a doctor to see that and go, whoa. Okay, I get it. That's pretty serious. That's a pretty strong way of describing the disease. And maybe people who have a hard time reading the information that I present, because it is got some medical terminology to it, that when people see those descriptions by other people who've experienced the disease, they can say, hey, that's me. That's exactly how it feels. And I just, I think that's really important for us. I grew up as a professional speaking the medical lingo, but I also realized as a patient, when I'm sitting in front of the doctor, how many times I've been gaslit and dismissed. And I can't even come up with descriptors to describe it. Or if I do, I don't want to say it because I think I'm crazy, right? That's just something that I have a passion for is trying to bridge that gap. And so that it becomes a real thing that the person sitting in front of you is describing something of how powerful that feels. Because the word dyspnea doesn't explain that. It feels like I'm trying to breathe in like I'm blowing up a flat balloon. I mean, to me, that's how I would describe it. We know how hard it is to blow a balloon up, right? You know, how much effort that takes. Well, having that sensation trying to breathe in when you have disease on the diaphragm, that's completely different than saying I have dyspnea. It personalizes it. Now, Wendy, on your website, you have all these great video lessons that you put together and I've gone ahead and I've linked them in the show notes for anyone who wants to take a look at them. But I really enjoyed lesson number two, in which you discuss the question, is extra pelvic endometriosis rare? And then you go ahead and you give statistics for the different body systems. So I have them here in front of me. I'll just read them out for the four most common ones. We have the gastrointestinal endometriosis which is 3.8 to 37% of people with endometriosis suffer this. 
The next common is urinary endometriosis, and this is 1% to 19.5%. Then we have respiratory endometriosis, 2.5% to 5.6% of people with endometriosis have respiratory endometriosis. And then we have cutaneous endometriosis, which is endometriosis of the skin, and that's 0.04% to 12% of people with endometriosis have cutaneous endometriosis. So Wendy, I wanted to ask you, because these are really varied ranges. I mean, we're looking here at cutaneous 0.04, which is not even 1%, to 12%. That's a really wide range of people with endometriosis who can have this. So all of the percentages are really wide ranges, like gastrointestinal 3.8 to 37%. That's a huge difference in numbers. So I'm just wondering, can you expand a little bit more on how the statistics for extra pelvic endometriosis are determined? And then do you think that these are a true representation of the amount of extra pelvic disease? Or do you think that the amount of extra pelvic disease is actually higher? Like, where do you think it actually falls within those really broad ranges? Yes, another million dollar question now. I would say that extra pelvic is underestimated accumulative when you take into account all locations of disease. I would range 25 to up to 40% of people with disease in the reproductive system also have disease elsewhere. Unfortunately, we don't have a universal system to record each episode and each location. These statistics are wide ranging for a couple of reasons. One is that it depends on the number of people that they're using in their study. So you could have four people in a study. So if you said, well, if you had one person who had the disease at 25%, right, of four people, if you had two people, 50%. So I think that the number of people need to be taken into account for the statistics that are given. And that's important to look at in the studies. Also, the location that most of these studies are derived from, there isn't a lot of funding for extra pelvic disease. We do know pharma obviously funds a lot of research. Not going to go on that topic because that's a totally different, <laughs> that's a multi-day podcast for you probably. So most of the research that we know about disease come from large medical centers that are attached to universities or from uh, multidisciplinary surgical centers uh, that have the time to publish studies. There is talk in our gynecology community, I was noticing uh, at the AAGL session last year, that they were considering forming a central database where multidisciplinary surgical centers from around the world can report their statistics of treating disease in these areas and get a little bit better idea of prevalence. I don't think it's the best system. It's a step in the right direction. But I also think there's a couple things that we need to consider. One is not everybody gets to one of these surgical centers for treatment. Another is that many of these people with disease at other locations are misdiagnosed or undiagnosed. We do have a report that had published 70% of people with disease of the cutaneous system. So abdominal wall disease, umbilicus disease, the less obvious disease associated to a scar from surgery and those with respiratory disease. Uh, when they were collecting information, they figured about 70% of those people go on to receive care and are initially misdiagnosed by a non-reproductive surgeon that later following surgery has confirmation of a diagnosis for endometriosis. 
this leads us up to a big problem, like the definition that we have. How do we accurately determine the prevalence of disease? I think at the moment, we have a system in place. It's not a universal system used across the globe, but it's the best thing we can do. And that is modifying the current international classifications of diseases and disorders that was established and overseen by the World Health Organization. So right now we have the 10th version out. So we have two sections that the ICD reports. One is the mortality rates and the other one is the morbidity rates. The mortality rates is used by 100 of 195 countries. So about 50% of the world's countries are involved in recording specific diseases that result in mortality, death rates. And about 47 of those 195 countries, which is about 25% of the world, are starting to use the morbidities listed. And what the morbidities does is it tracks diseases and disorders that occur globally. And each community, so each nation, will report each incident. And so that information is tracked. And that's data. We like data. Evidence-based medicine loves data. We need data to drive change. We need data to fund research. Endometriosis is one of those diseases that is included in the morbidity section of the ICDs. The ICD system is used by all healthcare professionals. So if you are a provider or practitioner and you're responsible for making some kind of a diagnosis, a disease diagnosis or dysfunction in the body, you go to this manual and you record it. It's a numerical recording of a disease and you check it off. So if you go to a doctor and they say, you have endometriosis, so that is going to be recorded on the 10th version under chapter N for female reproductive diseases. And in that section, you go to the category that is urogynecological diseases. And below that, there is endometriosis. Now, currently endometriosis, which is N80, if anybody wants to go to the ICD, 10th version, it's chapter N, number 80, and it's classified as a urogynecological disorder, but it is a non-inflammatory condition. So I'm curious how that got there. Within the 10th version of the ICD system, under endometriosis, there are also little identifiers. So there's a category for different locations of disease. Since endometriosis is still classified as a female urogenital disease, the priority is obviously reproductive organ locations. So right now, some of these locations identified include the uterus, which I really truly hope that they're referring to the external surface of the uterus. However, we know way back when some people were referring to internal issues of the uterus, adenomyosis as being internal endometriosis. So it concludes the uterus, the ovaries, the fallopian tubes, the pelvic peritoneum, the rectovaginal septum, and the vagina. In this version, you go, okay, so extra pelvic conditions need to be included in there. Right now, it is limited to three specific identifiers. So there's a category that is listed for intestines. So globally, intestines, it could be the rectum, it could be the sigmoid, it could be the appendix, it could be the cecum, right? All of that gets clumped, at least they get a check mark for incidence. Another identifier is scar endometriosis. That's an improvement. So it's recognizing cutaneous endo that exists, 
But that in itself is a problem because it's omitted 30 to 40% of cutaneous disease that occurs naturally. So we know that there's two categories of cutaneous disease. You have primary and secondary endo. Scar endometriosis is usually based on somebody having a procedure that involves accessing the uterus or the fallopian tubes, and they believe that that is transplanted to the scar and they develop a lesion there. However, we also know that 30 to 40% of people estimated, again, statistics, we have to be careful with how we adhere to statistics because they're not exact, have disease that are spontaneous, natural. The abdominal wall, there are cases of that. There's umbilical disease. That is the most common location. And so those are excluded in the statistics. Then we have one category, and it is called other, N80.A. So if you have diaphragm disease, you have disease of the ureter, of the bladder, the chest wall, the pelvic floor muscles, and nerve root, it all gets clumped together in that one category. So it's recording episodes of disease. You just don't know what it's recording. In order to get an identifier, you have to explain the prevalence of a disease. How prevalent is it? It has to be prevalent enough to warrant them to put a specific identifier to list that area of disease. Well, we're in a problem right now, aren't we? Because we don't have a system that is collecting it because we don't have the research. We don't have the number of studies out there to consistently say this is far more common than you think. Because we need all that in order to verify getting a code under endometriosis for each section. So it's like this catch-22 we're in. And so here we are saying, hey, guess what? You're the best thing we have to actually prove. So instead of us having to prove it to you, why don't you just put it in there and trust us that this exists and deserves a code? So I just want to clarify. So the ICD, that's International Diagnostic Code. And just to clarify, who is ticking those boxes in the, you know, is it the surgeon who discovers the lesion, who takes it out and says, oh, okay, this is an endometriosis lesion of the diaphragm. So I'm going to go to my ICD, my international diagnostic code, and I'm going to go under the, whatever you said, chapter N, number 80, the subheading here, and then I'm going to go put it in other. And oh, this is endometriosis of the ovary. So I'm going to go tick the little box there for endometriosis of the ovary. Is that correct? Yes, yes. So okay. it's, it's the International Classification of Diseases and Disorders, but it's, they call it the ICD, and it is run by the World Health Organization. So it has, you know, they have what, 140 some countries involved, but it's used by a certain percentage of the world. If it's not the surgeon directly, it's going to be the surgeon's supportive staff, you know, the billing department or whatever. And then all that information gets collected and is sent to the location to track diseases. And from the data that they get, then they can determine if policies need to be changed. What is the status of certain diseases going around the, the world? Like we're seeing, obviously, whoa, we need to do something about pollution because we're also noticing that pollution is contributing to cardiac disease. And therefore, we need to start implementing things in maybe this country or globally. So there's different levels from a local to a global level that the World Health Organization can go to put pressure on. I'd say if it's a national issue, they can go to the government. If they say, you know what, this is a regional issue, then we need to go to a regional group of those communities to say, what can we do? We need to implement changes. And that drives all the way down to how it's taught in medical school. So I think that. 
that's one of our best hopes. The problem is the 10th version has been out for 39 years to establish in 1989. And we got a problem because, well, we only have a few areas listed. So right now there's a platform that probably going to close pretty soon. And stakeholders for endometriosis can go to this platform and they can look at the 11th version, which is going to be a very big overhaul of how we address diseases. And you have an opportunity to put information in. I recommend this to be included, that to be included, modifying definitions, things like that. And endometriosis has undergone a little bit of a overhaul, but not to the point that it's impacting extra pelvic disease in a way that I think is important. So as we're shifting right now at this moment into changing the definition of the disease, trying to change the nomenclature for extra pelvic to be much more generalized into two categories. We also have the issue of we need to use a system that at least 25% of these countries that are using the system now will start recording because that's more involvement by multiple disciplines, not just gynecologists, and by multiple countries to start recording episodes of disease. Unfortunately, the 11th version modifications have only made one slight change for extra pelvic disease, but they've made phenomenal changes that have expanded disease of the reproductive system in the local peritoneum. So what they've done is they've expanded, included superficial ovarian endo, deep ovarian endometriosis, fallopian tube endometriosis, deep endo, which I'm assuming they are referring to the rectovaginal deep posterior cul-de-sac disease, the superficial pelvic peritoneum. They did take out the uterus, which is really a good thing, I think. They have added, that is good for all of the people affected by endometriosis, they've added an adhesive code adhesions. And I think that's really important so that people are going through the ICDs and they're discovering that they're seeing, oh yeah, adhesions. That makes sense because that's obviously a pertinent issue with the disease. But as for extra pelvic disease, they've made no changes to cutaneous endometriosis scar tissue. So it's again, limited to that affecting the scar. They've made no changes to intestinal endometriosis, which is really good because that's the number one location that we know of where extra pelvic endo exists. They added, ta-da, drum roll, a identifier for thoracic endometriosis. Now they don't clarify beyond that, you know, it affects the diaphragm, the chest wall, the outer surface of the lung, the inside of the lung, the airways, but the identifier is there. So what's missing? We know intestinal is number one. So Amy, what's missing? Ooh, a pop quiz, urinary disease. Bingo! I feel so smart in this moment. It's awesome because think about it. The prevalence of digestive system or intestinal disease and urinary are the two biggest. And this is really important. You're going to have people that are going to come across disease in these areas. You might have somebody remove a dead kidney and it's because of endo. Where are they going to cite that? This is important. And I think this is really weird because in the 11th version right now, We have one slot available that we could put urinary system disease in. I would be so happy if we could at least start with those top. Well, we got all four areas, right? Well, three and a half areas because cutaneous is only partial. But we're making a step forward to show the body-wide disease. But under the chapter that it's in, it's GA10 is endo. And the ninth identifier they have is, are you ready for this? You're ready. Hold on to the edge of your seat. Salpingitis 
Isthmica nodosa. That's 10.9. That's not endometriosis. That's not an endometriosis disorder. I don't know why that's there. I'm not a medical doctor, but that's not endometriosis. It is a female reproductive disorder and it does demand a code, but not there. And so wouldn't it be fitting to move that out of the way and just slide urinary system in there? And then we have at least the top most common areas of extra pelvic represented. And therefore we can start tracking it better. I think that's where we need to move. But it's been 38 years just to get this 10th. And if we run out of time now before the 11th version starts and we don't get that in place, how long do we have to wait? Again, I I might not even be on this planet before they do the next revision, right? The International Classification of Diseases for Mortality and Morbidity has a descriptor enclosed for each disease. And the descriptor for endometriosis, as it presents in the 11th version right now, before it goes to go online and be live, is a condition of the uterus There is frequently idiopathic. This condition is characterized by ectopic growth and function of endometrial tissue, not endometrial-like, outside the uterine cavity. This condition may be associated with remaining vestigial tissue of the Wolfram and Mullerian duct, which is true, that's one of the theories, or fragments endometrium refluxed backwards into the peritoneal cavity during menstruation. This condition may also present with dysmenorrhea, dyspareunia, non-menstrual pelvic pain, infertility, alteration of menses, or may be asymptomatic. Confirmation is by laparoscopy and histological identification of ectopic fragments. In a nutshell, they've expanded the description, but once again, what are we seeing? Stuck to the uterus, continues to describe, yes, Mullerian rediments is a possibility among some of these. Absolutely. Well, I just want to clarify for the listeners that the Mullerian remnants that we're talking about is what you were explaining earlier, which you explained very well about the embryological origin Yes, when yes. we're so embryos and the Mullerian When, we, when we're embryos, each, both male and female assigned sexes, receive a primitive reproductive tract for both male and female organs. It is only at the end of organogenesis where there's a trigger in the production of testosterone that then shuts down development of the female reproductive organs and the male organs continue to create a male sex. So those are what we call Mullerian remnants. That is organized tissues that have made it down there to the reproductive area before we're assigned to sex at birth versus some of the cells that don't always get to that area. They could be along that track. Absolutely. They just may be in areas elsewhere. So they've included that. But once again, they've included retrograde menstruation. My question is, is when you define the disease, were these areas necessary? Was it talking about that? Why didn't they stick to enigmatic? Did they have to include the uterus, right? This is an area, once again, that goes into a very important platform used by multiple professionals, that if we're going to change the disease definition, this needs to be changed in addition. I think it's really pleasing that they mentioned the malarian duct and the origin from being the embryo. 
but it's disappointing that they mentioned retrograde menstruation. But what's truly disappointing, because I understand retrograde menstruation is still a, a theory in everyone's yes. eyes. And that I, I, I'm not going to say that doesn't exist because it is a theory. We don't know. And I think it, it is a possibility. But I also know coming to this disease late in my life and seeing the disease from a totally different perspective. And the first sentence there, a condition of the uterus that is frequently idiopathic. Well, first off, it's enigmatic. We don't know what causes it. What does idiopathic mean? Unknown origin. But here they say frequently idiopathic and not just idiopathic. So as you read it, it's making you conclude that, well, it is because of Nullarian remnants, it is because of retrograde menstruation. Those are theories. Again, we cannot prove, there's no data to prove them. There's data to support a theory, but it's not been proven. And so I just don't think that that belongs in the description under the ICD platform. And this is going out to 25% of the country so far that are using this system. It's got to change. We've got to change the way we're thinking about this disease. Just to be like 100% clear for me and for all the listeners, what you just read is from what the proposed definition going into the 11th, tell us again where this information is going, that's going into the ICD codes as the definition of endometriosis, that all Uh, these- Yeah, it's more of a description of the disease. They don't have to use this, the exact definition. So the description that has been submitted for explanation of endometriosis describing the disease is a condition of the uterus. It's frequently idiopathic. It's ectopic growth and function of endometrial tissue. And we'll just clarify again that the ectopic growth means ectopic means growing in the wrong spot. So once again, implying that comes from the uterus, ectopic tissue, it's tissue that should be in the uterus growing in the wrong spot. That's what I hear when you read that definition. And that Even is though the, we don't know if it's tissue that's from the uterus, because it is not, it's similar, but it's not representative of it. We don't know where it comes from, yet you're implying that it is come from the uterus, because when you mentioned frequently idiopathic, you're setting that up. I mean, it's, it's full-born idiopathic. It's enigmatic. We don't know what causes it. So why aren't we sticking to that? Describing the disease, you could fill up that whole paragraph that they've just used, describing the disease better. Describing disease, not just the areas that you listed. Hello, what about extra pelvic? It just doesn't represent body-wide disease again. Well, and to think that this description of endometriosis is really important because, as you said, some 25% of the world are using these ICD codes in order to record the different diagnoses that the patients get. And so, of course, every time you drop down to the category of endometriosis, you're seeing that. So it's like subconsciously, even if you're just glimpsing past quickly, you're seeing these words, uterus, ectopic, frequently idiopathic, retrograde menstruation, like it's just further hammering home what we don't want to, like what we're trying to get away from. Correct. A general surgeon that's removing a lesion from umbilicus or a thoracic surgeon that's removing a lesion from the chest cavity, they're going to look to give that code to somebody, a diagnostic code, and they're going to look into the book of endometriosis. And when they read the description, what are they thinking? And I think that's really important for us because there are unconscious biases in exactly what's written here. There's unconscious bias. 
And it's setting up unconscious bias in our practitioners that we're going to see. And these are things that we need to really pay attention to and identify this among the scientific community itself, because they're responsible for setting the tone. We all have our special interests, but we have to make sure that while we address our special interests and work in our way, but we're also not setting up the system to make them think like us, provide what is out there and what is accurate, but don't lead people to believe a certain thing until the information's there to support it. It always fascinates me how whenever I'm learning anything about endometriosis, what I've been learning in my own research and, you know, trying to get information to bring it forward for myself and for the listeners is that endometriosis is so complicated. Everything that has to do with endometriosis is the definition is complicated. The nomenclature is complicated. The way they describe it is complicated. The statistics system to actually record how they get the statistics and the prevalence of the disease is complicated. It's all complicated. It's all confusing. It all needs an overhaul. It all needs to be updated. And that's really infuriating because I think that some of the reasons why, as you said so many times, it's unclear. There's no good diagnostic and recording systems that we can actually get statistics and get that data and use that data to drive change. Everything is so linked in so many ways back to the uterus in the words that they use to the way they describe the disease. Even as you said in the ICD, putting endometriosis under the code for the female reproductive system when clearly the lung, the diaphragm don't belong there. And so it just astounds me. Well, not really. I'm not astounded anymore. I'm just so I'm just so sickened and disgusted by how much farther we really have to go with all of this with endometriosis to get better medical literature on the disease, which can then trickle down to better education for the doctors and the nurses and the nurse practitioners and everyone involved in our care, better awareness so that when we go to the doctor and when we say things like during my period, I have a stabbing pain in my chest and it feels like I'm trying to blow up a flat balloon. They don't just laugh in our face and tell us that, though, that's not real and, you know, drink some wine or take an Advil. All of these things are really all connected and just really detrimental ultimately to the care that we are receiving as patients and also as human beings, you know, just being gaslit and dismissed and not believed and not taken seriously. And the fact that it takes years and years, you know, 16 years in my case, well, I think some 30 years in your case to be diagnosed with these diseases that are ravaging our lives and we're crying out for help and we have plenty of symptoms. It's not like the disease was silent for us, just like you, my endometriosis began with rampant diarrhea, debilitating period cramps, and oh, no one could figure out what it was, you know, and it's just, it's really sickening. So I think today, We'll leave off. This is our part one with Wendy because, as you can see, Wendy has, she's so knowledgeable. Wendy, you are so knowledgeable and you have so much to say about this topic. And today we kind of wanted to break down the more bird's eye overview of the issues that have to do with endometriosis, the issues with the definition both of endometriosis itself generally and the issues with the definition of extra pelvic endometriosis the issues with the statistics and why they're so varied and why it's so hard to record statistics. And of course, our celebration about endometriosis, the first documented case found in the spleen, so that now it's found in every single major organ. It's so sad to see how endometriosis really is in the full body. 
but at the same time, it just further helps our points and to hammer home that point that endometriosis is a full body disease. So I think it's a good and a bad thing. We can be horrified and fascinated that it was in the spleen, but at the same time, glad to get evidence of that so that we can keep pushing forward change to get endometriosis away from being a reproductive disease, to get it to be a full body disease, and to get extra pelvic endometriosis taken seriously. For all of the people with endometriosis, maybe up to 40% of people with endo who are suffering with extra pelvic endometriosis. So maybe it was a really nerdy episode. I love nerdy science stuff. I love statistics. I love it. I love it. And I know Wendy does too, but I know Wendy, you do you want to say a little bit about what you're going to talk about in part two? Some really fun and exciting extra pelvic information. Yeah. Thanks, Amy. I think you did a fantastic job of summarizing everything that we talked about today. It's difficult because I'm always in the trees, but I also know to pull out and and address the bigger issue that was what we talked about today. Um, It is dry material, but it's very, very important that we start at the top. Endometriosis is a disease from the get-go that I think the scientists, the doctors, where they were headed, they were trying their best. I just think that they put blinders on. And as we became more specialized in, in medicine, everybody gets more and more focused on their particular part of the body. And we're at a point that we can't do that with endometriosis. Everything to date has made the disease far more simple than it is. And we have a lot of these barriers that we have to address. And now's the time to get it done and do it right. And you see that happening with people speaking out about, let's change definitions. Okay, well, we're at it. Let's change the way we're collecting data because we know that those are things we have to have to stand our ground and support what we're doing. Those things in turn churn to that clinician ending up putting extra pelvic endometriosis on a differential diagnosis list when you go to see them at the doctor. It's the boring part. It was fun. Uh, I'm more excited about our next episode, though, where we could talk a little bit more about what's body-wide, what's systemic, a little about animal endometriosis. Ooh, I'm excited about that. And um, much more about extra pelvic disease in particular areas. You know, how, how does it present? What are the issues we have with imaging restrictions, inability to identify it? Oh my gosh, there's a lot. I'm, I'm really excited. So I appreciate you giving me this platform and having have an opportunity to come back and talk again and, and expand on those areas. Cause obviously that's an area I really might unload and be very excited. <laughs> you might have to calm me down. No caffeine that day. Thank you. I look forward to it. Well, you're welcome, Wendy. And we want to thank you. I think on behalf of all the listeners, and as I said, as and this entire community, thank you so much for your time. And thank you for coming on the show and giving us this time and for all of the research and the hard work that you do. It is so appreciated. And I think sometimes, you know, doing research and work like this, it's very solitary at times. You're in the, you know, PubMed and and in the different scholarly platforms and looking up research and writing the blog posts and I think sometimes it can feel really like, who is this reaching? Is this reaching people? Is this important? And so I just, I want to tell you that it is reaching people and it is important. And I think this snowball starting at the beginning of the mountain that you began a few years ago was quite small, but now it's just picking up speed and rolling down the mountain. And hopefully it will just roll all the way down the avalanche and just crush the idea that endo has something to do with the uterus and just make it so plainly obvious that endometriosis is this full body disease found even in some animals, which, yeah, I'm also really excited. Animals don't have a period. I know. I know. (laughs) I can't wait. So, 
So thank you, Wendy, so much for coming on the show today. We're really excited to have you on next week. And thank you. Nothing was boring. I was literally on the edge (laughs) of my seat, fascinated by every single thing that you talked about, because these issues are so important. And it is really important to understand the bird's eye view of endometriosis and how we have all of the problems, everything from the delay in diagnosis to the quote unquote treatment options that we're being told by the doctors that, you know, we're not being told about the gold standard. We're given treatment options, being told that they're quote unquote treatment, but they're really symptom management. Like there are so many issues with our disease and you're helping tackle them one by one. We have to get the gold standard to be recognized by the associations that are responsible for licensing individuals. We can't get there alone. And so everybody else in our community is on the ride with me. And, and I love the support. And I, I'm there for everybody with the disease. And hopefully we'll do it all together. So thank you. So we went ahead and we linked Wendy's information in the show notes of this episode. So there you can find her website, the videos that she made on extra pelvic endometriosis, her Facebook group, her Instagram handle her phone number. No, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Calls at two in the morning. Wendy, can you explain to me about the extra genital again? I didn't. Oh, a nightmare, nightmare, nightmare. Oh God. So you'll give me your phone number after we'll just pop it right in the show notes, but all access to Wendy via the internet. So thank you. And we're looking forward to talk to you next week. All righty. 